Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for bringing us here once again into your house where we can sing your praises, give back to you what is already yours to begin with, read from your word, and sit at your feet and, and, and learn from your teaching. We thank you that you still speak to us today, very clearly, very powerfully. Your word tells us that in these last days you speak to us through your Son. And we know that the word of God is the embodiment of your Son. And we thank you for speaking to us through your word, in the, especially in these last days. And we are hit from every angle with deception with, with illness, with darkness, with heartache. Your word we can always turn to for your truth, for your foundation, to reveal to us who you are. And we look forward for your return for us one day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tragedy is a part of this earthly life. Some of you lived during the times of World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. My generation, when I was a teenager, was 9-11 and the beginning of the Afghan and Iraq wars. It seems like there are mass shootings every day, even ones involving school children. Structures collapse, fires engulf homes, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and wildfires ravage entire communities. Those are just on the national, state, and community levels. Then there are personal tragedies, fatal car accidents, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse and assault, heart attacks, strokes, seemingly sudden death of younger people, cancer, gunshots, loss of a child or spouse, loss of a home or a marriage and family in shambles. Tragedy and heartbreak always seem to be walking right along beside us. That wasn't my usual lighthearted opening to a message. But these messages are absolutely necessary because in this world, tragedy is an ever-present possibility. How do we deal with it? How do we go through life knowing that? A lot of people will ask the question, where was God in this fill-in-the-blank tragedy? That's the answer we'll find in this morning's passage, along with the rest of God's word. If we're walking through heartbreak and loss right now, or when we do, this morning's passage, this morning's message, will provide the crucial equipping we need to walk through it. We pick back up in our passage this morning where Jesus has just arrived on the outskirts of Bethany. Martha has expressed her overwhelming faith in who Jesus is, but at this point, Lazarus is still dead. And when we finish this morning, Lazarus will still be dead. We know what Jesus will end up doing, but it's in this snapshot time of waiting, 
of confusion, of not knowing why God allowed something unspeakably horrible to happen, of not knowing where God is that we'll be spending our time in this morning. And in this time of upheaval, we'll see where God is and what God's doing. Just as a brief aside of review, last week we talked about Jesus' authorship of and authority over life and resurrection. We looked at how Jesus would show his authority over life and resurrection in a very real way. By very shortly calling a dead man out of his tomb. We looked at how Jesus' authority over life and resurrection also extends to the resurrection of every human who has ever lived, some to the first resurrection unto eternal life, and the rest to the second resurrection unto eternal judgment and torment. We looked at how those of us who put, have put our faith in Jesus for our salvation and eternal life will also be a part of the first resurrection, but that we will get an extra blessing of being a part of Jesus' rapture of his universal church. And we looked at how it's only through Jesus' authority over his own resurrection and over his own life that we have any hope. We also looked last week at Martha's commitment and declaration of her personal faith in who Jesus is. Messianic King, God himself, and the deliverer from sin. Martha still didn't know or understand what Jesus was about to do, but she knew that who Jesus was and therefore knew his authority over life and resurrection. At this point, Lazarus is still dead. Martha and Mary are still mourning and pleading with Jesus to do something about it. And there is still an overhanging feeling of grief and heartbreak. This is where we pick back up this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 28 and 20. We're going to start with verses 28 and 29. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 11. Uh, we'll be picking back up in verses 28 through 29. Or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But we read, When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. We saw Martha's heart and faith last week. And now the emphasis is moved onto Mary. Mary was the one, if you remember, with the sensitive heart. Who simply wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. That's all she wanted to do. She hung on to every word he said. The world faded away at that point in that account in Luke, and all was well. All was well because out of Jesus were flowing the words of life and meaning. Her brother was still alive and may have even been hanging out right next to her. But since then, the world was all too real and had come crashing down around her ears. Jesus was back, but it was a whole other world at this point. 
In verses 28 and 29, Mary was processing her grief, sitting shiva according to Jewish custom like we talked about several weeks ago, surrounded by loved ones, when all of a sudden, someone entered the home with the news that Jesus was just outside the village, and Mary abruptly got up and darted out of the house. All those who were with Mary were confused as to her surprising exit. We just read that it was told to her in secret and assumed that she, overcome with grief, ran out to the tomb to mourn there, verses, 20, uh, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. But Mary wasn't going to the tomb, a place of finality of death. She went to the one who held any hope, any possibility of anything changing, verses th verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As pointed out by one biblical scholar before, in Luke's account of Jesus' last visit to Bethany, Mary sat at Jesus' feet, soaking up his words of life and the very wisdom of God. Now she collapsed at his feet in grief and weakness, sobbing for days, having racked her body and sapped her of all of her strength. And it wouldn't be too much longer that Mary would then anoint those very same feet with the most expensive heirloom she possessed and her own hair in symbolic preparation for her Lord's death and burial. You notice anything about Mary's statement to Jesus in verse 32? Does it look familiar? They are the same exact words Martha already said to Jesus back in verse 21. Just as Martha meant them, this was Mary's roundabout way of pleading with Jesus to change the situation. This was the way you said these things as per Jewish custom of the day. Instead of coming right out and presenting her wish to Jesus, Mary, like Martha, posed it in an indirect way out of respect for Jesus. Even though an indirect presentation, we can still see the emotion in Mary's statement. We already know from verse 5 that Jesus loved this family. He had a special place in his heart for them, for they simply believed in everything that he was. No strings attached, no ulterior motives, and certainly no human exploitation. We know Martha was more of a type A, hardworking, bootstraps type of person from what else Scripture says about her. From the descriptions of her in Scripture, as has been noted by one biblical scholar, Martha may have been the oldest of the three siblings. That's why she took it upon herself to go out to meet Jesus first. Now, this is speculation 
But as the oldest, she may have been able to hide her emotion a little bit better than others. That doesn't mean she wasn't mourning, but that she appeared to be handling it better than others, especially for Mary's sake. There's no wrong way to grieve as long as it's processed in the first place and not in unbiblical and destructive ways. But then, picture this. Picture Mary making her way up to Jesus. Like we, like we already have a bit of an idea about Martha's constitution, we sort of already have a bit of an idea of Mary's. We already know she has a sensitive heart. With a sensitive heart comes sensitivity to emotion, especially when it comes to grief. Whereas Martha may have been able to pull it together in her conversation with Jesus, we can tell Mary was overwhelmed with her grief and her emotion. As we'll read in a second, Jesus was deeply moved at the sight of Mary's devastating grief. Even just the description of Mary falling at Jesus' feet describes for us a woman reeling from paralyzing emotional agony. She's been weeping for days, most likely not eating very much, with all the color and strength drained out of her body, collapsing at the feet of Jesus. Again, this is speculation, but seeing that, that Martha is mentioned first in verse 5, then Mary, then Lazarus in verse 5, it might have been that Lazarus was the baby brother of both Martha and Mary. Both Martha and Mary could have helped to take care of Lazarus when he was a baby, helping him to learn how to walk, how to say different words, how to play different games, and holding him in their arms when he skinned a knee or got picked on by other kids. I'm not trying to be overly grim here, but I'm trying to paint the picture of how crushing this loss was for both Martha and Mary, and why Mary, especially in her emotional sensitivity, was so shattered by it. This then explains what follows, verses 35, 33 through 35. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. As a bit of a lighthearted aside, if you grew up in a church's children's or youth group where you had to memorize scripture in it, how many of you always chose John 11.35 to be that scripture? Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. I know I always chose that one. Anyway, let's get back to the situation here. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, in direct opposition to the Greek gods and goddesses' utter apathy towards the human experience, we see Jesus, both as 100% human and 100% God's response to this highly emotional setting. 
And it's that he's both deeply moved and troubled. Or what this word could also be, and better be translated as, angered. He was deeply moved and he was angered. Now we can obviously understand Jesus being deeply moved, but why on earth would Jesus also be moved to anger by poor Mary's grief? She just lost her brother. Jesus was deeply moved and angered, not because people were sad, but because of what sin had done to humanity and to the world. This was not how God, and as the Apostle John opens this gospel with, specifically through the Son of God, created the world and humanity. When God created the world and humanity, he said that it was good. Then the pinnacle of his creation rebelled against him, bringing upon themselves the curse of sin, which not only spread to all of humanity, but threw the entire world into chaos and ultimately introduced death in the world. From that point on, Humanity has been bombarded with destruction and death at every turn, most of which is what humans do to each other. From that point on, children have been exploited, abused, murdered before even being born, seen and taught things their little minds shouldn't have to try to process yet, manipulated, deceived, sent off to the horrors of war, been the victims of mass shootings and bombings, and many more things. From that point on, women have been exploited mutilated, abandoned, abused, stripped of dignity, oppressed, and left to try to give birth and raise children on their own. From that point on, men have been traumatized by war, mutilated, emasculated, and tortured. From that point on, humans from all ages and both genders have engaged in every kind of sexual or gender relationship or identity, perverting God's gift of sexuality in a marriage between one man and one woman to anything that could be imagined and have been sexually abused, assaulted, and manipulated as well. From that point on, humanity has been attacked and decimated by various illnesses, cancers, heart and brain conditions, mental and physical disabilities, chronic and unbearable pain, broken bones, alcoholism and other substance abuse destruction, and more recently chemically and pharmaceutically induced psychological and physical problems. From that point on, plagues, famines, drought, and various other natural disasters wiped out entire people groups and communities as the earth itself groans and reels from the curse of sin, as Romans 8 tells us. And from that point on, Satan and his hierarchy of the kingdom of spiritual darkness have deceived, attacked, 
oppressed, depressed, and possessed humans to do whatever their dark minds can think up and move in world leaders, politicians, officials, and people who just have a ton of money to manipulate and deceive the people of their countries, promote their sinful and selfish agendas, commit genocide, and start wars based on pride and selfishness. As believers in Jesus, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see all of it happening all around us. And we see Satan making himself less and less of the unseen world and more and more of the seen world. Abuse, war, racism, pain, torture, mutilation, deception, murder, and death are not how God created the world and humanity to be. And Jesus, seeing it right in front of his face, deeply moved him to anger at what sin and Satan had done to the world up to that point. God has never stopped being angry at what sin and Satan have done to the world and humanity. He's chosen to step in, rescue, and save different people and people groups throughout the thousands of years of humanity's existence, and especially his people. He saved his people from permanent slavery in Egypt. He preserved his people in his disciplinary allowance of Assyria and Babylon to attack and exile them to captivity. Saved his people from extermination by the Greeks, Romans, and more recently, Germany's Nazi regime. By extension, God has saved those who put their trust in Jesus from numerous dangers throughout the past 2,000 years. Certain evil people have gotten what they justly deserve in this world, and others have not. But rest assured, brothers and sisters, all those who have rejected God and his Messiah and have instead done unspeakably evil things to their fellow humans will receive their judgment by God someday. Someday, like everyone who rejected God and his Messiah, and that Messiah's deliverance from sin, they will be thrown into the lake of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. And someday God will pour out his wrath upon this earth for all its thousands of years of evil. It's known as the end times tribulation years that we talked about last week. And we will be rescued from it by way of the rapture. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, God will have his justice. But where is God now in times of tragedy and evil? The people who surrounded Mary in her devastating grief wondered aloud that exact same question, verses 36 through 38. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Where was he? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. 
Some thought that Jesus was emotionally and deeply moved by his love for Lazarus and knowing he was dead. Some questioned what in the world Jesus thought he was doing in a challenging way, saying, we know this guy has given sight to blind men. Where in the world has he been all this time that he couldn't save this man from dying? In other words, the question was, where was God? Why didn't he stop this tragedy from happening? It's the same exact question people today still ask. We remember this. Where was God when the planes hit the towers? Where was God when that person opened fire in a Christian school targeting and killing innocent Christian children? Where was God when I lost my child, both unborn and after having been born? Where was God when I lost my spouse? Or like Martha and Mary, where was God when I lost my sibling, parent, grandparent, or other relative way too soon? Where is God in times of tragedy and loss? Where is he? He's right there alongside of us. Also deeply moved with us. Where is God the Father in times of tragedy and loss? Right where he's always been. On his throne in complete control of every situation. Orchestrating and working out his perfect plan according to his perfect reasons. Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. Every single thing that happens. Where is Jesus in times of tragedy? and loss, serving as our high priest and interceding for us before the throne of God the Father. Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Where is the Holy Spirit in times of tragedy and loss? Indwelling us as his home, groaning in intercessions we can't even understand in our humanity. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for, as we should, especially in those times of tragedy and loss. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When this says saints, this isn't talking about canonized saints. This is talking about every single one of us who has put our faith and trust in Jesus. Romans 8, 26 through 27 not only reminds us and assures us of the Holy Spirit's ministering to us and for us in our darkest and most devastating times with his groans that are too deep to express in mere human words, but they unlock the, and answer the question, 
Why didn't God stop this from happening? It was the question the people with Mary asked in verse 37 of this morning's passage, and it's the same question we ask today. Why did God allow this to happen in my life, and why didn't he stop it? One of the reasons the Holy Spirit, having made a home within us, intercedes for us with groans too deep for words is because he is interceding for us according to the will and plan of God the Father. It's in perfect unity. Remember, all three members of the Trinity work in perfect unity with each other, with both the Son and the Spirit working in submission to the Father's will. And that's the place we have to come to as well. No matter how traumatizing or heartbreaking our situation is, that's the place we have to come to as well. Complete submission to the Father's will. That's the key point in this whole discussion on tragedy. The answer to the question, why did God allow this to happen and why didn't he stop it, is... He has his own reasons, and he has his own redemption for it. That may sound cruel. That may sound shallow. But we are the creation, and God is the creator. God is the potter, and we are but the clay. We were created to glorify him. He may choose to reveal to us why he allowed certain tragedies in our lives, and he may not. Our place is still the same. We still trust him, knowing his plan is still perfect. Why? Why? Do we still trust him knowing his plan is still perfect? Because in some cases, even if God chose to reveal to us what those reasons are, we still may not be able to wrap our finite human minds around them. Isaiah reveals to us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And at the same time, no matter how devastating our situation is, no tragedy changes this truth. We know that God causes all things, all things, to work together for good, for redemption, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. No matter what the trial is that we go through, the Apostle James also tells us that there is always, 
always a reason for it, even if the most basic reason that we will ever only understand this side of heaven is this. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's okay to grieve and mourn our losses and heartbreak. In fact, we're supposed to grieve and mourn our losses. We need to grieve and mourn our losses. In this shattered world, cursed by sin and evil, grieving is a necessary part of our healing process. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Blessed, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be Comforted. That's a promise. Allow yourself to mourn. Allow yourself to grieve, for you will be comforted. Why are those who mourn and grieve blessed? Because they will be comforted. Comforted by what and by who? Comforted by God Himself. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. God will allow certain heartbreaking times in our lives, the very basic understanding, to grow us in our faith and reveal deeper levels of himself to us through his Holy Spirit, as the Apostle James wrote, and will always bring us the comfort we need at our deepest level, given directly to us by himself. He never leaves us. He never abandons us, especially in our times of greatest pain, loss, and need. Along with the loss and heartbreaking situation, he will always give us his comfort and peace. And oftentimes the reason for why God allowed something in our lives is so that we can bring a testimony of his comfort and peace to someone else who needs to hear about that and is going through a very similar situation. That truth already gives indescribable redemption to that source of pain. The Apostle Paul, a man who suffered great physical and emotional pain for the sake of Christ, wrote this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. As the body of Christ, we are also to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, according to Romans 12.5. At the end of all of this suffering in this life, along with all of God's comfort in all of it, this is the truth we also have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Amen. The question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We've all heard that question before. We've all probably asked that question before. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That question completely sidesteps the real issue. The real issue is that, as one famous preacher said, there was only one good person who ever lived, and he was nailed to a cross. The real question is, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Why does God even have mercy on us? Why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Why did God even provide a way for us to be saved from our sin through his son? Why does God bless us with what he chooses to bless us with? Why does God comfort us in our times of suffering? The answer to all of that is his undeserved grace and mercy. That puts everything, and I mean everything, including our suffering, in the biblical and correct perspective. Ultimately, this is the place we have to come to in our grief, in our intense suffering, in our loss, and in our heartbreak. It's the same place a man named Job, who lost all of his kids and all of his income in one day, and then lost his health and well-being in the next day. He understood and surrendered himself to this truth, that anything we are and anything we have in this life is because God has given it to us. Anything we are and anything we have in this life is because God has given it to us. And therefore, it's God's to do with as he deems best. For his reasons, for his plan, for our spiritual growth. And we have to eventually come to a place 
of being okay with that, no matter how that affects us. He created us according to his plan. He chose to save us according to his plan. He grows our faith and comforts us according to his plan. And he will bring us into his new heavens and new earth according to his plan. This man Job, who lost everything and no one was any help to him, including his own wife, who kept trying to convince him to just curse God and get struck down and just be done with it all, Job made this declaration of faith, which is ultimately what we all have to eventually come to a place in our lives of surrendering everything to, and that's this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And yet, always, no matter what, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives us blessings. And the Lord is the one who takes away those blessings for his reasons and for his plan. They are his to give and they are his to take. No matter what, no matter what is taken away, may we all still declare, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a rough message to get through, but a absolutely crucial and necessary message. When we started this passage, Lazarus was dead, and when we ended this passage, Lazarus was still dead. There, is, there was grief, there was mourning, deep grief and mourning. And Lord, you know way better than I do or anybody else in this room, the heartache and the pain and the trauma and the abuse that those of us sitting in this room or listening to this online later have experienced. And you were right along there, right beside us. And you are redeeming it. And you are bringing us the comfort that we need and you will always be with us. Lord, may we all eventually come to a place where we say, you know what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And yet in all of it, I will still praise the name of the Lord. I pray all these things in the resurrected, redeeming, all-powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.